Good morning. That was pretty good for the first time. Uh, my name is Gary Anderson. I am the pastor here at Midtown Fellowship, Granny Wyatt. Thank you. Um, I wasn't looking for that, but I will take it. Uh, before we get into today's message, there's just a couple of things I want to say coming off the heels of uh, our service last week. Uh, for those of you who might be new and visiting this morning, or for those of you who weren't there last week, or for those of you who came to the 10.30 last week and wondered where everybody was, we had a big transition service out there in the parking lot where the lead and founding pastor of Midtown Fellowship, Granny White, been here for 23 years uh, of his own decision by the belief that God is calling him into a new season, stepped down as the lead pastor of this congregation, and uh, yours truly was uh, installed as the new one for better or for worse. Uh, And I just want to say this. Um, I can't, like, thank you doesn't, doesn't do justice to what I feel towards you all, but I just want to say thank you. Um, for a church, for the lead and founding pastor of 23 years to step down, uh, not because something went wrong, not because something happened, because he, he felt called to do so, and he is beloved, and he is staying at the church, for, and then someone else to step in, for that to go smoothly, like, that's, that's one out of 100, more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> come on, come on. But, and, and like you all have a little bit of a perspective. I have an insider's view of how this has gone down. It has gone, I think, better than any one of us could have ever expected. And so I just want to say thank you because uh, you all have never gone through a pastor, pastor's transition, a pastoral transition. And um, you have loved and welcomed us with open arms beyond what we deserve. Uh, part of why this has gone smoothly is because Randy is a kind and humble and generous man. And part of why it's gone smoothly is because I'm a kind and, no. is <laughs> because I'm just happy to be here, seriously. And, but, but also part of why this has gone smoothly is because you all have stepped into this with courage and conviction and grace, and that doesn't happen in a lot of churches. And so I just want you to know how much that means. I know this is, I know this is heavy. Like, I feel it. I know pastoral transitions are hard, and I know it's sad. I saw all of you crying from up front last week, many of you. And I've been telling myself that was for Randy, not because I was the one taking over, but <laughs> time will tell. So... Um, Thank you. And here's just the other thing I want to say as it relates to this first Sunday of a new season in the life of Midtown Fellowship, Granny White. I am not Randy. And I'm not going to try and be Randy. Uh, This is going to be lost on many of you based on your ages, but uh, there's a song by a guy named Sammy Davis Jr. uh, called I Gotta Be Me. And that that is my song as I step into this role, and that is I Gotta Be Me. Uh, That's not easy because a lot of days I don't like me. And a lot of days, I'm not sure who even me is, but I can't try and be somebody else. Um, I read a, a fantastic book on church leadership when I was in seminary, and actually the pastors are reading, pastors here at Midtown, we're going through it right now. It's a book called Canoeing the Mountains. And uh, in that book, the author quotes some leadership guru uh, about uh, what his definition of good leadership is. And the, his definition of good leadership is this. It is disappointing people at a rate they can accept. And that's amazing. That's an amazing definition of good leadership. And so here's my commitment to you. I will do everything within my power to disappoint you at a rate that you can accept. Because me being me is going to be disappointing. It's disappointing to me. Uh, 
but my job here is not to make you happy with me. My job here, and it is, it, is the, it is the one note I will play for as long as God allows me to be in this role, is to point you to the one who will never disappoint you at any rate that you need acceptance, and that is Jesus Christ. So uh, thank you. I am so excited about what God is doing and for this new season here at Midtown Fellowship, and uh, let's go. So with that, uh, Allie Barnes is going to read our text for today. It is a doozy. They all are. Well, most of them are in this book. It's Revelation 11. And she's going to read verses uh, 1 through 17. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to the heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at the hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Allie. It's going to get weird. Uh, So last Sunday, uh, as we were out there in the tent, and I was up on the stage with my family and the elders and the prayer and advisory team, and Randy's there, and he's reading me questions, and I'm looking out over all of you, many of you, and seeing tears, and like the gravity of the moment was hitting me, and I had a little bit of an, I mean, out-of-body experience is a, is a little dramatic, but I had a moment while I was standing up there on the stage last week where I just felt overwhelmed by this question, and I wonder if you've ever felt this way before. Uh, I've felt it many times before. This is just the latest iteration of it, but I was up there in the middle of that service, and I was like, what am I doing here? Thank you. How, like, 
how did I get here? Why am I here? What am I doing here? Now, I can answer that logistically. Like, I can walk you through all of the steps that happened from last year and getting connected with Midtown and conversations and phone calls and interviews and quitting my job and moving across the country and all that. I know, I know what I'm doing here. Like, I know why I'm here. But, but it's like more, in a more meta sense, I was like, what am I doing here? Have you ever felt that? You've ever had those moments in your life? It might be like you're sitting in your cubicle one day that you've been at for two months or 20 years, and you're just like, what am I doing here? It, it might be when you were at a wedding, might have been your own wedding, and you were like, what am I doing here? <laughs> it, might be, it might have been at a funeral it, or, or in the midst of some kind of traumatic event, and you just stop for a moment and you think like, what am I doing here? It might be at two in the morning when you're awake and you can't go back to sleep and all of life is swirling through your head and you can't help but, but feel this like, overwhelming sense of, how did I get here and, and what am I doing here? I think we all, you know, based on how you just responded, we've all felt that at some point or another. And without trying to like manipulate you into feeling something this morning, my hope is that we can sit in that question together this morning. What are we doing here? Why are you here? Why, like, and I mean both personally and corporately. Why do you live in Nashville, 20, or Green Hills, 12, I think that is Nashville, right? 12 South, Brentwood, wherever you live, 2023, why, what, what are you doing here? And then why are we all here together this morning? Because those two questions kind of go together. Um, what's really cool about the way God works is uh, if I could have chosen what I was going to preach on this week, I think this is the topic I would have preached on. And it just so happens that Revelation 11, when we dig into it, is actually going to speak to like what I think is like one of the most critical things we can think about and one of the most critical things we can answer. What am I doing here? Because here's the, here's the deal. There is a lived tension for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, right? Here, here's the deal. We believe in a sovereign God who is one day going to make all things new and that he uh, one day will call us to be with him and there will be no more sadness, tears, crying, death, sickness. But when we come to him and we bow our knee to Jesus Christ and we're adopted into his family, we don't get to do that right away, right? He, we stay here. Most of us. I mean, I suppose somebody in the history of the world died right after they accepted Jesus as their savior. But that's the exception, not the rule. Why is that? Because our journey through this world, through the, as the book of Revelation would say, through the, the city of Babylon, it's tough. This life is full of hardship. It's full of difficulties. It's full of sicknesses, disease, disappointments, frustrations, broken relationships, a lot of the stuff that our, our brother Paul just talked about, like all of us are going to experience stuff like that at some point. And is there not a part of us that's like, well, why do we have to do this? Because even, even scripture says, you know, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, in chapter one, he's like, I would rather depart and be with Christ. That would be better, right? I was listening to a pastor many years ago preach on something similar to this subject. Now, he was a Baptist, so they, they immerse for baptisms. But this is what he said. He was like, when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ and they pronounce that faith and then we baptize them, why don't we just hold them under and send them home to glory? <laughs> well, you know, thou shalt not murder comes to mind. But does it not, like, is there not a tension there, right? Why, why do we got to go through all this garbage before we get to the prize, before we get to the end? The question is, what are we doing here? And that is actually exactly what Revelation chapter 11 is going to speak to. What am I doing here? What are we doing here? Why are we here? The answer is this. We got a job to do. There's a reason. 
It's not just happenstance circumstance. It's not just that God has some weird way that doing things that we don't understand. He tells us explicitly, and we're gonna sit in it this morning, we are here for a reason. There's a reason that God leaves us here and does not take us home to glory when we accept him as our Lord and Savior. So as we come to Revelation chapter 11, that's the answer. We're gonna find the answer to that question as we come into this. But we need, and like I, this is like when I teach the Bible, this is, you will hear me say this over and over and over again. The Bible is not a collection of memory verses that are all dissociated from each other. In order for us to understand what is going on when you come to a passage of scripture, the number one most important thing is what? Context. Context, context, context. So we have jumped ahead several chapters. For those of you who are tracking with us in our study in Revelation this fall, and let me just help us get caught up there, and then I'm going to explain to you why we jumped ahead to chapter 11 today. So we're in our fall series, fall, early winter, whatever, we're going through Advent, book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation 1, John, island of Patmos, exiled for faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus visits him, vision from Jesus. I'm going to tell you about the things that are to come, write it in a book, and send it to the seven churches. Revelation 2 and 3, the messages to the seven churches, which we have all, like we know now, it's not just to the seven churches, it's to all of us, right? So, so far, so good. Vision, chapter one. Messages to churches, two and three. Four and five, which we kind of skipped over, but we're gonna come back to it next week, so it's gonna be awesome. John gets brought into the heavenly throne room. He gets brought into God's throne room and heaven. Echoes of Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, he catches a vision of God. Uh, there's a scroll, no one can open it. It's got seals, spoiler alert, Jesus is the one who can open it. He starts to open the seals and that's chapters six and seven is the opening of the seals of the scroll and that is God's judgment on the kingdom of the world, on the city of Babylon. Chapters eight and nine are seven trumpets. Well, it's six trumpets. We got the seventh one at the end of our passage that uh, Allie just read for us. And most scholars believe that's just a recapitulation of the seals. It's, an, it's another uh, playing out of God's judgment on the kingdom of the world, on the city of Babylon. Revelation chapter 10, John has a vision. He's back on earth. He has a vision of an angel descending out of heaven, like a huge angel. One foot goes in the sea, one foot goes on the land. And he's got a little scroll. And he says to John, you eat this little scroll. And chapter 11, by eating it, that means that he's going to say what's in the scroll. And chapter 11 is what is in the scroll. And so why did we jump ahead to chapter 11? Richard Bauckham is a highly respected New Testament scholar from the United Kingdom. He's got a great little book called The Theology of Revelation. In that book, he says that Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, are the central message of the book of Revelation. And for all of us who just heard it read, we're like, that, that can't be true, <laughs> right? He says everything up to this point is preparatory for what is revealed by John in Revelation chapter 11, verses one through three. Here's the other thing. Every scholar I read in preparing for this message said Revelation chapter 11 is probably the most difficult chapter in Revelation to interpret. First day on the job. Let's go. <laughs> and if we believe that Revelation is the, maybe the hardest book in the Bible to interpret, what we're hanging out in today could be the most difficult chapter in all of scripture to interpret. And so here we go. Uh, it is the answer to the question, I, I believe it is, the answer to the question, why are we here? What are we doing here? And so um, we're gonna draw out three things. It would be awesome to go through this verse by verse. It would take us about six hours. So we're not gonna do that. So uh, someone after the first service was like, that passage feels like attacking just an enormous steak. And I like that, but there's gonna be some meat left on the bone when we're done. And that's just the nature of a 
35-minute sermon. Um, so I want to draw just a few overarching principles that we draw from chapter 11. Uh, we don't have time to go into all the images and details, but would love to talk to you about that some other time. So here's the first one. We're here for a reason. The first thing that Revelation chapter 11 teaches us is that we are here for a reason. So the central character or central characters of Revelation chapter 11 are who? Two witnesses. Come on, come on. Let's go. We have to know who they are in order for us to understand what's going on here in this this passage. So we get a clue right up top. Revelation 11 verse 1. Then I, that's John, was given a measuring rod like a staff And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God. Now, that should give all of us history buffs some pause. Why? When was Revelation written? When did we say Revelation was written? Most most people believe sometime in the AD 90s. What happened in AD 70? The temple was destroyed. The Romans came in, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. So here we are 25 years later, and God is like, go measure the temple. And so we should be like, there is no temple to measure. Hold that. Okay, so now I'd go down to verse three. God says to John, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days that's symbolic, clothed in sackcloth. Verse four, these, the two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, so that's God saying, here's who these guys are. Here's who these two witnesses are. And I don't expect, if any of you could pull this off the top of your head, you are amazing. But if you know your Old Testament, Zechariah chapter four, Old Testament prophet, he gets a vision of the temple and he sees two olive trees and a lampstand and he is told that that represents the church. And when we go back to Revelation chapters one through three, end of chapter one, God says the seven churches are what? The seven lampstands. And that theme gets carried through chapters two and three. So God is saying, I got two witnesses. They're the two olive trees. They're the two lampstands. I want you to measure the temple, but there is no temple. But we know in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says to the Corinthians that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you put all of this together and what we believe the two witnesses are is Jesus Christ's church. The two witnesses are the church. Now, that, now, now if we can settle on that, now this chapter all of a sudden becomes like, oh, okay, now we, can start, now we can start drawing some things out of it because what is the thing that he says about his two witnesses in verse three? I will give them authority and they will prophesy for 1260 days for a time. What is that saying? Really simply, like boil it down. It's the point that I just, I'm trying to make right here. They have a job to do. They're there for a reason. Why why did God leave his two witnesses in the city of Babylon, in the place, remember the letter to Pergamum, in the place where Satan dwells? Why didn't he just bring them home to glory? Because he's got something for them to do before he does. And that is true for us as well. One of the most um, amazing things about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it, it teaches that God has a family, that we are all orphans, And that when we bow our knee to Jesus, when we are covered by his blood and say, I cannot save myself, I need you to save me, we are then adopted into the family of God. We become adopted sons and daughters of God. But here's the deal. When we are adopted into his family, we have something to do. We now have a calling on our life. We now have a purpose and a meaning that we did not have beforehand. And I was trying to think of like, how do do we see this other places? And we see it everywhere. When you got your acceptance letter to that Ivy League college, yes. I was gonna say when I, but I'm not gonna lie on my first day. 
when you got your acceptance letter, it doesn't have to be an Ivy League college, when you got your acceptance letter to college, oh, there we go, sorry, uh, did the degree come with it? That would have been sweet. That's not the way it works, why? Because when you get into school, that's a new calling. It's a new meaning, it's a new purpose. There's a lot of work that now comes along with that. When you, uh, when you got your dream job last Sunday, not joking, when you got that huge promotion, was it like, hey, got a big raise? I did not get it, I mean, that would have been nice, but. Uh, got the benefits, got the, you know, the expense account, like, and I just have to coast, right? No. When you got the big job, the big promotion, now that comes with a whole lot of work to do, right? Like, like you got a new calling, you got a new purpose, you got a new reason. Uh, when you got married, if you are married, was that the finish line? Like, hey, we made it. We made it through engagement. Now we just chill. No. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. That was just the start. Because now you have a new calling, a new purpose, you have a new reason. When you, uh, if you have a child, when you have your ch a child, like it, when you had your first child, was it like, we made it? That's the royal we. We made it through labor and delivery. Yeah. <laughs> Now, that, now this thing will practically raise itself. <laughs> no, it was the, just the start. It's the, it's the beginning. It's, you now have a new reason, a new purpose, a new job, a new calling. And the same is true for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. Why, why doesn't he just bring us home to glory when we, when we bow our knee to him? Because he has work for us to do. Now, I gotta be really careful and I gotta thread the needle really, really carefully here because um, what you're gonna hear a lot from me in the coming years and anyone else who preaches here at Midtown is that the gospel is not based on work. It's not based on how you perform. God doesn't love you more if you do a good job. He doesn't love you less if you don't do a good job. It's not about earning salvation, none of that. So please don't hear me saying that. But we also have to hold that intention with when God calls us into his family, he's got a job for us to do. We've got, we've got a new calling, we've got a new reason, we've got a new purpose. It, look, uh, the preamble to the, to the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the house of slavery, now obey my rules. It is not obey my rules and then we'll see if, if, how good you do and I'll save you from slavery, right? So, so when we say God has a job for us, God has something for us to do, it's not because we're trying to earn anything, it's out of grateful response to what he has already done for us. But someone needs to hear this morning, whatever your life looks like, whether you have been given good things or hard things, you are here for a reason. You have a meaning and a purpose that goes beyond what you can just see right in front of you in this moment. If you are still drawing breath, God is not done with you and he has a reason for you to be here. And here it is, second point of my message. We are here to tell the world about Jesus. We are here to tell the world about Jesus. All right, come back with me to the text. Verse three again. God says about these two witnesses, his church, I will grant authority to my two, what? Witnesses. Okay, so they're called witnesses. Now jump down with me to verse seven. And when they have finished their what? 
testimony. So we got witnesses, we got testimony. If you have been around church for a while, that's like, that's really churchy language, right? Like someone's gonna give a testimony, someone's gonna, I'm gonna I'm a witness. Uh, if you're not around church a lot, if you go outside of these four walls and you start using language like witnesses and testimonies, what, are, what, what, what other world are we talking about? Legal, courtroom. So here's what is being communicated in Revelation chapter 11. Somebody is on trial. Somebody is on trial in the kingdom of the world, in the city of Babylon. And for those of us who've been Christians for a while, I think it's easy for us to, to think like, oh, it's me. I'm the one on trial. You know, if the world hated me, they're gonna hate you. And you know, if I suffer, you'll suffer. That's not the message of Revelation chapter 11. That's not, he's not saying his witnesses are on trial. Who is on trial? Thank you. Jesus is on trial. The world, the, the city of Babylon is a huge courtroom. The kingdom of the world that we inhabit right now is a huge courtroom. And, and Jesus is on trial. And God is saying, the reason I leave my church in that world is because they are to bear witness to the world that I am who I say I am. Their job is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That I am the way and the truth and the life. God leaves his church in the world in order that we might show the world who he is. Why are there two? Why are there two witnesses? Isn't that kind of funny? Why, why is it two? Back in Deuteronomy 19, when Moses is giving the Mosaic law through God, through Moses, giving his law to his people, this is what it says, Deuteronomy 19:15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus, John chapter eight, he's in the temple. He's talking to some people who aren't sure who he is. He says, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Why are there two witnesses? Because in God's kingdom, in God's economy, two witnesses who pronounce the same thing verify that it is true. Why does God leave us here? Why doesn't he just take us home to glory? Because we are in a world that has put him on trial and we are his star witnesses, bearing witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. We are here to tell the world about Jesus. Uh, this is um, what C.S. Lewis says. If you're playing uh, evangelical preacher bingo, there is your C.S. Lewis reference uh, for today. This is from... Um, an essay he wrote many years ago called God in the Dock, and that is not like the dock on a lake or uh, on water. It's a British term for being on trial. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God in the dock. So why don't we just hold people under and send them home to glory? Because we have a job to do. Because Jesus is on trial and we are left here in the world to bear witness to the fact that he is who he says he is. Do you know that in eternity, we will do everything that God calls us to do here on earth except one thing. We will worship in eternity. We will live in community. We will work, but it won't, it won't be thorns and thistles. It will be rewarding and joyful. 
We will be in relationship with other. We will play. We will, all of that, we will do in eternity. But we will not witness in eternity. It is the, it is the one role that the followers of Jesus Christ have here on earth that ends when we go to heaven. And that is why we are here. So here's, here's let, let me just, let's just bring that home to our neighborhood. What that means is that um, all of the things that God has called you to do, all of the circles and spheres that God has called you to move in, they are shadow missions that underlie the true reason that you are here. So your job, it might be worthy and noble and good and fulfilling. It might be hard and frustrating and difficult and miserable. Either way, your real purpose in that place is to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. Your neighborhood, your club, your sports team, your school, your knitting club, your reading club, your whatever else you're in, those are all shadow missions. They are good and right and part of living a fulfilled life here in this kingdom. But they are shadow missions giving you an opportunity to fulfill your true mission as a follower of Jesus Christ, which is to bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. That is why we are here. And you know what that means for us? And I need to be careful how I, like, I want to tread lightly here, but it means we can't spend all our time hanging out with Christians. We, if we at Midtown Fellowship Granny White, and this is a tension for us, if we are expecting you to be here four nights a week, we are failing in our job as, as witnesses to Jesus Christ. You should be in circles with people who do not know who Jesus is. It is part of your purpose here in this world. And I know for a lot of us, it's like, I, like to talk about Jesus, like gives me a, like it scares me. And like, welcome to the club. Like, I'm getting ahead of myself. Just live faithfully and see what happens. We are here for a reason, and it is to bear witness to the fact we are the star witnesses for Jesus in the kingdom of the world to show them that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, here's the last thing. How do we do that? And this is where it gets kind of crummy. Verse 7. We do it by dying. How do we show, how do we bear true testimony to the world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners? We do it by dying. So jump, jump ahead with me again to verse seven. It says, and when they, the two witnesses, Jesus Christ, church in the world, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, that sounds great, uh, will come back to the beast in chapters that, come, or chapters that are coming, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This is, um, there's some like tension here. So, uh, just skip back with me to verse three. What does Jesus say that he will do for his two witnesses? What is he gonna give them? Authority, and they will prophesy. Now skip down with me to verse, verses five and six. This says what they'll do. If anyone would harm them, Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. James chapter five, Elijah prayed to God and he shut the, rain, he shut the sky from raining for three and a half years. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. Sound familiar? Moses. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Also Moses. So what are, what are we being told here is the role of uh, the witnesses? Who, what are they like? Who are they? They're, they're prophets. 
And when we read that, and I'm like, I'm part of, like, I'm part of Jesus's church, and he says, I'm gonna grant you authority, and fire's gonna come from your mouth. And I'm like, all right, here we go. This is what I'm talking about. Let's go. But, but, but what do we know about the office of prophet in the Old Testament? Nobody wanted to be called a prophet because it was a call to sacrifice, ridicule, suffering, and death. Both Elijah and Moses, the two great prophets of the Old Testament, at some point in their ministry said to God, take my life. When Stephen is speaking to the leaders of the Jewish people in Acts chapter seven, and he's given a history of the nation of Israel, he says to them, which of the prophets did your fathers not kill? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is none of them. The call to be a prophet was a call to suffering, sacrifice, and death. It's like, it's like the Hunger Games, right? Like God shows up, God shows up and says, Isaiah, you are the one I am calling. Ezekiel, you are the one I am calling. Daniel, I'm calling you to be a prophet. And the mom and dad start crying and their sisters, like I offer myself as tribute. And God's like, no, I'm calling them because it was a call to sacrifice, suffering, and death. And the same is true today. God is calling us to be prophets to this world. Not so that we can tell them how wrong they are, but so that we can show them that Jesus is real by dying. Now, here's the hopeful part. Did they stay dead? No. Chapter, uh, verse 11. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud. Okay, they died. They were dead for three and a half days. They were raised to new life. They ascended into heaven. Hello, like any, any like, does that sound familiar? And then what does it say in verse 13? Great earthquake, city fell, last sentence, or last clause. The rest of the world was terrified and did what? Gave glory to the God of heaven. How did the two witnesses show the world that Jesus is who he says he is? By dying and then being raised back to life and ascending to heaven. Their power was not in the fire that came from their mouths. Their power was in the fact that they suffered and died and the world saw it. That's why it's crummy because that's the call on his two witnesses down through the ages, which is you and me who are gathered here in this church called Midtown Fellowship Granny White. The call of the life, remember, remember week one, there is a cost to following Jesus. The call on the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ is to lay down our lives for his sake and for his gospel. Uh, there, was an, there was a church father who lived uh, actually not long after Revelation was written. His name is Tertullian. He lived in Carthage in North Africa. I studied up on him for my ordination exams. Um, and there is a it's a, it's a legend that, that comes out of the time of Tertullian. Uh, maybe it's real, but, but it's, a good, it's good either way. Uh, there was a guy in his city who was a silversmith and had spent his adult life making idols to be sold in the temples there in Carthage. And he was saved. He came to faith in Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the tension between what he did for his job and who he now bent his knee to uh, overwhelmed him. And so he came to Tertullian and he said, Tertullian, what am I supposed to do? If I don't make idols, how will I feed my family? We must live. And very famously, Tertullian's response to him was this, must you live? Because at that time, if you weren't willing to die for Jesus, there was great question, 
great question as to whether you were going to be able to live for Jesus. And though we don't live in a moment in history where most of us are likely to have our lives literally put at stake for our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we all have to make that decision every single day. We all are being called every single day to die to ourselves, to live to something greater. And honestly, and this is not to minimize those who have literally given their lives for the sake of the gospel, in some ways that might be harder. What we are called to might be harder. How many days are you like, I would rather die than empty the dishwasher? Just me. (laughs) Then love my wife the way that she needs to be loved. Then love my husband the way that he needs to be loved. Then go to this crummy job that I just keep getting dumped on, but you might be the only person in that place who knows Jesus and can witness to the fact that he is real. It is hard to die to ourselves, and yet the battle cry of Jesus Christ's church is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. How do we prove to the world that Jesus Christ is real? By dying to ourselves day in and day out. Uh, there is, there's a lot of talk these days about, especially in like Christian circles, about authority and power, how we need to exert our power and our influence on whatever it is, culture, politics, family life, schools, so on and so forth. And uh, I just think that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly as it is presented in Revelation chapter 11. Because our power is not found in rising up. Our power is found in laying down our lives. It is in our suffering. It is in our sacrifice. It is in our weakness that we exert our power. When we are weak, then we are strong. And that is the kind of church I want to be a part of. Unleash that power on your home, the power of dying to yourself and living to something greater than yourself. Uh, Unleash the power of facing sickness with hope, of facing disappointment with joy, of of, uh, unleash that power on your neighborhood, on your workplace, unleash that power on your community uh, and, and watch what happens. I want Green Hills and 12 South and Nashville to be terrified, verse 13 because of the power they see in our midst, and that is not the power of us rising up and telling them how wrong they are. That is the power of us collectively laying down our lives, dying to ourselves that we might live to something greater. Why are these guys clothed in sackcloth? Sackcloth was the garb, it was the clothes of repentance. And that is twofold. The witnesses are clothed in sackcloth, one, because they are calling the kingdom of Babylon to repent. But how many people have repented because someone has pointed a finger at them and said, repent, repent, repent? Nobody. They are also wearing sackcloth because they are repenting themselves. And how many people have repented because they have been invited into repentance along with a group that already is doing so? That is the kind of church I want to be a part of. And I am so excited to see what God is going to do as we step into this new season here at Midtown Fellowship Granny White. We are here for a reason. We are here to to testify to the world that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and the way that we do that is by dying. 
Now, here's the thing. We'll go home on this. Uh, we don't do that because it shows how committed we are to Jesus or how obedient we are to Jesus or how sold out we are to Jesus. That doesn't convince anybody of anything. The reason our dying proves to the world that Jesus Christ is who he says he is is because it is our imitation of him. He is the one who did it first. And we are simply following in his footsteps as we do. John chapter 12, Jesus is talking to some people in the temple who are, don't, are questioning who he is. And he says this thing to them. He says, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people unto myself. And I think a lot of people in that moment probably were thinking about when he comes back in power, then people will recognize who he is. But what he was referring to was that just a little time after that, he was going to be lifted up. He was going to be lifted up on a cross for everybody to see. And Mark chapter 15 tells us that when Jesus breathed his last breath and died, the Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross said, truly, this was the son of God. When he saw him die, that is when he knew who he was. That is what our witness to the world proclaims. But he didn't stay dead and neither do the witnesses. We have a hope that goes beyond what this life can provide for us. We will share in his resurrection and that is a message that a world is, uh, the world around us is literally dying to hear. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you have to actually lose your life to find it. And we are surrounded by a city full of people who are stumbling around in the dark, desperate to find their life. And we have the message that all you have to do is lose it and then you can actually find it. May we be a community that is taking them that message. We are here for a reason. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the conviction of your word. God, thank you, um, even as we work through a, a, a crazy book like Revelation, that you are teaching us and growing us and changing us because of it. And the cry of my heart this morning, God, as we step into a new season here at Midtown Fellowship Granny White is that we would be your faithful witnesses here. I pray, God, that you would empower us to take the message that you love us more than we could imagine and yet we are sinful, more sinful than we could imagine and yet you love us more than we could imagine to a world that is dying to hear that. May Green Hills and 12 South and Nashville and Middle Tennessee know that there is a God in heaven because there is a church that exists called Midtown Fellowship Granny White. We cannot do it without your presence, without your spirit working in us, and we ask that you would do it. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.